0: So, Jack Hammer, thank you for talking with me today. Uh, let's start at the very beginning. Where and when were you born?
1: Well, I was born at a very early age. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland.
0: What month? My, I'm interested in your astrological sign.
1: My, my dear beleaguered city. Um, so are you just so you're into that? Okay, I am the typical Gemini. I, I am the prototypical Gemini um June 11th.
0: I'm i I'm June uh, 12th.
1: No way. Really? What does that say? I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> You're a Gemini, too.
0: Yes. And, oh, my God. And pretty typical in that lots of different interests get bored easily. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and, you know, we're, we're sort of communicators, right? Isn't that one of the things we are we're typically? Absolutely. Yeah. So... So do you believe in astrology?
0: I think it works, and I think it's symbolic, and I don't know how it works. I don't know how a constellation affects a behavior pattern, but I, I think it's kind of a map for the karma that we bring in from previous existence. So if I yeah. to get esoteric on you, but um, um. it works.
1: So, I mean, I understand and appreciate your interest in, in mysticism and things that we don't even have a clue of the real truth of, you know, our understanding of the universe is we're, st- we're, still, we're still very primitive, uh, you know, species. We're just sort of waking up.
0: Well, 95% of the universe is dark energy and dark matter. and We don't understand that. Most of our DNA is called junk. DNA, we don't understand that. Um, quantum mechanics, quantum physics is weird and spooky according to the physicists, but it's you know, it it's about a set of laws in the invisible world. So yeah, I'm doing a, a webinar on a series of books that I did about mysteries of reality, mysteries of knowledge beyond our senses, mysteries of healing, with really Visionary scientists on May 15th, if anybody's interested in this topic. So, you were born in Baltimore, and then um, what about your education career path?
1: Well, let's see. I went to Shenley Road Nursery School, <laughs> <laughs> and the story there is that I was in a baby contest and, and I won second place, but the bad news is that my mother was the judge. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. But I think I think I was I think I was in a baby contest. And I think I won second place. I don't know. Shenley Road Nursery School. I went to Roland Park Public School for kindergarten. Um, that was a nice experience. Uh, I I rode the public bus. I was a kindergarten kid, and I rode the public bus back and forth, no, home from. I think my mother dropped me off at school, but. She and my father worked together. He was a doctor. She was a nurse. She helped out in the office, uh, you know, running the the front office and also doing some injections, I guess, once in a while. Uh, She had to work. And when kindergarten was over, the best way for me to get home was to ride the bus. And I do remember as a little boy, uh, she put me on the bus a couple of times. I think we probably had two dry runs, maybe three, maybe only one. But she put me on the bus and she followed behind the bus to make sure that I got off at the right stop. And so I was a big boy because I I could do that. Um, That was nursery school. I went to a a Catholic parochial school for elementary school, the Cathedral Cathedral School of Mary Our Queen, at least that's what it was named from the fourth grade on. Before that, it was a, a version of that school, but downtown Baltimore. Then I went to Baltimore Polytechnic High School, Baltimore Polytechnic Institute for high school, sort of a, math, science, and engineering school, which at the time was only for boys, is now very much gender-integrated now. And the girls are doing really well. Um, and then I went to college, thought I wanted to be in journalism. Um, but uh, as soon as I got there, not because of me, it wasn't, you know, because of, it wasn't after this, there then that, it was uh, just a coincidence, but I got there and the school lost its accreditation. so. You know, so I sort of stopped trying to be a journalism major and then uh, went to Georgetown Law School for a year till I decided I hated it, took uh, a half, uh, took a year off, went to Arizona and taught seventh and eighth grade, hmm. uh, math, science, and social studies in a little parochial school out there. Uh, I had to tell the priest because he wanted me to teach religion. I said, Father, I really can't because I'm kind of like a fourth degree agnostic, you know, I really can't. he said, that's all right, don't worry about it. So math, science and social studies, um, a lot of fun with those seventh and eighth graders because I was only, you know, just what, 10 years older than them at the time, that was great. Uh, Went back to Georgetown Law School to see if I liked it any better and it turned out I liked it worse, so I said bye-bye. Uh, the reason I thought I might want to go back was because during that summer, after I taught school in Arizona, I worked for the Arizona civil liberties union to, um, investigate the Flagstaff Arizona municipal court, which, uh, had some very questionable constitutional and, uh, due process practices. And I investigated them, wrote a report that was fun. Uh, I was sort of a spy on the court. Um, um, and that, that was fun. So I thought maybe I do like this law stuff. Went back to school in, at Georgetown and, and took a one of the courses I took was environmental law. And I just remember being really, I don't know, disillusioned when the course on environmental law was about how to get around the environmental laws. That's, that's what I took from it. You know, and I just said, I don't really want to do this. I don't find it that interesting. So there you go. And then I've been sort of like a tumbleweed across the desert ever since. You know, I don't really have a career of anything to speak of. Well, you
0: have a social work degree and you've worked as a social worker and in correctional institutions working with men, right?
1: A year, a year in the jail, a year in parole and probation, a year at the National Fatherhood Initiative. But I didn't go to social work school until 2005 when I was 54. Most of my paid income has been through either PR, marketing, advertising, or IT,
0: Mm-hmm. So, and so I, I don't
1: really have a career in the sense of uh, a continually, what do they say in the help one ads? adds, you know, progressively increasing responsibilities, you know, that's sort of what a career is. Hmm. And I, I don't have that.
0: Well, you're a Gemini, we understand. <laughs> yeah. uh, but a theme that's been very consistent is your concern about gender and feeling yeah. that men have gotten a fair, uh, not gotten a fair shape. So what led to your interest in men's roles?
1: So I can trace that to a couple of places. Um, I can trace it back to my first conscious awareness, or I can trace it back to what you might call sort of recovered memories, things that happened a long time ago that I didn't really think about, but they were sort of in there. How far back do you want me to go?
0: Whatever seems most pertinent. Well, I mean,
1: if we have time, I'll give you the whole thing.
0: We've got an hour.
1: All right. So the first conscious memory I have was when I was on a co-ed softball team in the early 1980s. And we played on Tuesday nights. And after our games on Tuesday nights, we'd go out drinking and dancing and partying and having a good time. And, you know, having some dinner maybe. Um, But couldn't have too much dinner because, you know, that would ruin your appetite for beer. (laughs) So... (laughs) We would uh, go out and have a good time. So two two weeks in a row I remember this happened. I was sitting at a table talking to one of my teammates, one of my female teammates, and they they were um, telling me about their boyfriends. And they were going on and on with their tales of woe about their boyfriends, and both of them, both times, both weeks, ended their stories by saying something to the effect of, and so he's a real jerk don't you think and both times i said you know maybe maybe he's a jerk but you know from his point of view maybe from what you're telling me the way it looks to him is such and such and i don't even remember what i said but it was something pretty obvious you know that occurred to me that maybe what he's thinking or worried about or trying to avoid or trying to achieve Something was pretty obvious. Both times they said, oh, my God, I never thought of that. And so that's when it occurred to me that maybe the male point of view is really not very well understood, maybe not very well articulated, maybe not very well represented. And so um, I said to my girlfriend at the time, who was also on the team, I said, you know, I think... I think I want to start a magazine or something. She said, well, you know, magazines are pretty expensive. Printing is expensive. Postage is expensive. Why don't you try a radio show? Good idea. Electrons are cheap. So I did a radio show from 1983 to 1989 at a student-run station at Towson University north of Baltimore. Uh, The show had various names. I think we started out calling it um, The Lives of Men. Then it became In A Man's Shoes, and I even tried Men, Sex, and Power for a while. But it was mostly In A Man's Shoes. And it did pretty well, and it was a lot of fun, and I loved doing it. Uh, But after, from 1983 to 1989, I tried to get it onto some commercial stations, and I got some interest, but you know what? The sales staff at these commercial stations said, we can't do this show. Nobody will buy ads on it. (laughs) Nobody will buy ads on it. And their, their concern was that it would make women mad or that the advertisers would be afraid it would make women mad. Yeah, I don't know. Um, OK, so that was my first conscious memory. 1982, 81, 82, 83, when I started the radio show that the, uh, the softball thing. So that was my first conscious memory. But then after I got into men's issues pretty well, because, you know, I was talking about a different aspect of male males every week with pretty interesting people. I remembered uh, something that I used to hear as a kid. Now, you're very well aware of the harm it does to, to little girls when they hear, if they're good at math, If they hear, gee, you're really good at math, dot, 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 for a girl, right? What's the message to her? You're a weirdo. What's what's wrong with you? Girls aren't supposed to be good at math. Or you're really good at sports, dot, 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 for a girl. Well, you know, what's the message? You're not supposed to be good at sports. That's for boys. What I remembered hearing as a little boy was, wow you're really good with babies, dot, 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 for a boy. And I didn't really have the equipment to think about what was going on there, but I remembered thinking, what's up with that? I don't, that's not, what's going on here? Um. So that's as far back as I can go. And that's one of my earliest, that's, I guess that is my earliest memory of something going on with you know male gender stereotypes biases you know that kind of thing so there you go
0: on on your website you you say jack cammer the counter feminist social worker what what does counter feminist mean
1: yeah so let me let me mention that the counter-feminist social worker was how I was building myself. And I guess to some extent I am building myself that because along with being a podcast host, I also am interested in maybe being a podcast guest. So uh, I sort of made up this whole idea of a counter-feminist. Um, to distinguish what I think f- from anti-feminism. To me, an anti-feminist says, no, it's all a bunch of baloney. It's a bunch of malarkey. Women have it easy. There's there's no problems with being a, a woman. It's just a bunch of junk. That's what an anti-feminist says. A counter-feminist listens to women talking about feminist perspectives and problems women have. A counter-feminist says, yes, and. Not yes, but, but yes, and. Let's talk about the rest of the story, the, the, the ways in which what's going on with men are connected to what's going on with women. And let's have, you know, let's talk about really solving these problems because we're not going to solve the problems if we're not in balance or if we don't have a way of approaching balance. So that's a counter feminist. Yes. And
0: when, when I think of the men's movement that points out the hazards of being male. I think of Herb Goldberg and his book of that name, Warren Farrell, um, in in terms of most well-known authors. What would you say are themes and what the men's movement points out are the hazards of being male? Men die earlier, commit suicide more, um, don't get proper health care. What are the hazards?
1: Well, the most influential book to me as I was undertaking this radio show, uh, the most influ- influential book to me was Herb Goldberg's The Hazards of Being Male. Now, Herb, is he's a PhD, what, a psychologist? Yes. Yeah. So I think his, uh, his take was mostly psychological issues. I don't even remember him talking much about divorce or child custody. I, I don't think so. But... Um, And and then the second most influential person to me was that I met our friend Fred Hayward.
2: You, You know Fred, of course. Yes.
1: And I just love Fred, he's brilliant. And, you know, I probably, I could say we hit it off really well, but probably more of the truth of it is that he was into this before I was, and I learned a lot from him. I mean, I got a lot of, he has some very interesting ways of saying things and seeing things. And I love Fred Hayward. So Herb Goldberg, Fred Hayward, you know Fred is not a divorced father's uh, activist, either, but to any great degree. I think what the three of us might have in common, herb Goldberg, Fred, and me have in common is just the idea of being able to live full, happy, and complete human lives uh, and and for me i can 't speak for herb, herb and Fred, but for me, the primary the primary goal for me is to make sure that boys and men have is many options for happiness and fulfillment a fully human life as uh, women and girls do uh, in this day and age when we've done a lot of work to make sure that women have women and girls have full options and i see some situations in which men and boys do not yet have that
0: benefit like what what are the what are specific issues that inhibit men's Mm full lives
1: A boy touches another boy, and he's got to say, no homo. Um, Boys think about what they want to study in college. Well, petroleum engineering looks pretty lucrative. Right? Um, And then, of course, there are the divorce issues. And there's the whole... There's the whole cultural problem, I think, of just in some ways, I'm not saying in all ways, but in some ways, along with being devalued, women are overly, not overly valued, but are valued more than men are. Women's feelings uh, are are more likely to get empathetic responses than men's are, you know, you think about, uh, you know, a man, I think I should give credit to Tom Golden for this because I think he's the one who first put this in my head. You know, imagine a man, uh, imagine a woman sitting alone in a restaurant crying. You know, oh, you're, what's wrong with her? What, what, what happened? Should I go over and see if she's okay? Imagine, um, imagine a man sitting alone in a restaurant crying. It's not the same feeling. It's not the same. So those are the kinds of things that I think are probably connected to the fact that we are still prim- pretty primitive people, a- still a pretty primitive species. And it hasn't been that long since we were a species that had to do everything it could, had to wring every bit of efficiency and safety and survival, probability out of what we could do, and we found that, well, women were maybe a little better at men than these at these things, and men were maybe a little bit better at women at these things, and in some cases, a lot better at these things, and so we specialized. Women, you're going to do that, and men, you're going to do that, and that's going to give us the best chance of not being eaten alive by alligators and tigers. And and best chance for our babies to survive. So hunters
0: and gatherers. Yeah, but, you know, protectors
1: and nurturers, you know. And so we had to do that. We had to specialize when we were primitive, when the the world, you know, could easily put us into extinction. But we're not there anymore. Yet we still have these vestiges of... You know, I mean, suppose a little boy back up on the, on the Serengeti grasslands, a little boy was sitting around the campfire and it became his time to go out and, you know, take a spear and go be out on the perimeter to, you know, keep the lions away. You know, suppose he, he cried and said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to stay here at the campfire with my little brother and my little sister and my mom. And I don't want to go out there. And, what happens to him? What happened to him? Well, what happened to him was like a really strong dose, a really, really strong dose of what still happens to the boys today who express any interest in the, the campfire stuff, you know, around the campfire and relationships and belonging and safety and comfort and expressiveness and you know, warmth and affection and all those things that we all need that, that, you know, men, because of the primitive necessities, sort of had to forego because they were out there, you know, maybe 12 of them, you know, covering, you know, a three acre campsite or a one acre campsite, you know, they're alone, they're all spread out. And that was required. And that's what became valued in men. And the men who were really valued weren't just the men who found that tolerable, but the men who really enjoyed that. They enjoyed the challenge of that. So that's how I see it. You know, we're still pretty primitive. right? And and, and, you know, just as women have said, hey, over the past 50, 60, 70 years, hey, we don't wanna be stuck here around the campfire, okay? there are a lot of men who are saying, hey, we really would like to get some access to that campfire, okay? And it just, it hasn't gone for men back in as much as it has for women to be able to get out.
0: Just as a footnote. That's
1: the way it looks to me.
0: what, What I've read is that hunters and gatherers were pretty egalitarian. The men took care of the babies the men, when they hunted as a group, the women would help with the nets and that kind of thing. So some people argue, I think like Marx, that agriculture and being settled down and having private property is what caused the sex roles to really divert and become separate.
1: Yeah, I've, I've heard that agriculture was sort of a huge paradigm shift for us. Yeah. And so, but what did that change? I mean, the man was still the one who had the muscles. So in the interest of efficiency, he's going to be the one out there, you know, pulling the, flap, the plow.
0: Yeah, but you know, in Africa, it's women who carry the burdens and do the heavy work, so. Well,
1: you know, that's interesting. I keep hearing what the women in Africa do, and I keep wondering, what do the men in Africa do? What did the men in Africa do? Why don't we talk about that? And I think it might be because they are down in the freaking diamond mines, which is just another form of being out on the perimeter, you know, taking care of external business. You know, I, yeah. So, yeah, the women in Africa do a lot. <laughs> I okay. wish we talked more about the men in Africa.
0: Okay, good point. What what about in your own personal life? Have how is It evolved in terms of your parents' roles, your marriage. Um, What kind of personal experience do you have with this double standard of male-female access to the good life?
1: Well, that's a good question, And, and there's lots of ways to answer it. But the one thing I definitely want to say that comes right to mind is that being in the men's movement and being exposed to different ideas about, know how you can be a man and get away with it (laughs) or insist on getting away with it Um, I learned probably the most important thing the men's movement has done for me is to just get me to the point where I can trust my feelings just trust your feelings not to think that you're always right But also not to think that you're always wrong if you think you want some changes. Um, trusting, Trusting your feelings has really helped me live a happier life. Because before I got to that point, whenever I was in a relationship with a woman and it wasn't going well, I was completely vulnerable to shaming. I was wrong, I was wrong, not, well, I'm somewhat right and somewhat wrong and she's somewhat right and somewhat wrong and we got to, you know, work it out. Um, So learning to trust my feelings got me to the point where I could say to a woman with whom I was in conflict to say, look. You can't tell me how I should and shouldn't feel. I'm telling you how I feel. You're telling me how you feel. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't try to shame me. Don't try to shut me up. Don't try to turn it around and make it all about you because you know that technique is, well, you, what about me? You know, that's, and you know, I don't go for that anymore. I I don't take that bait. I say, yeah, I understand. You, you, you've got some skin in this game, too, but so do I. Now, can we talk about it? And that has helped a lot. That's helped a lot. Um, so, you know, I guess that's, you know, the main thing for my own personal life that has been connected to being in the men's movement.
0: Um, I'm working on a, a book about happy long term marriages. Um, and one of the questions I ask is, what have been your areas of conflict? So in your marriage, what have been the issues where you've had to work through this kind of feelings, communication, dialogue? I, I,
1: don't, I don't want to get into specific issues because my wife isn't here signing a waiver saying I can talk about our stuff. <laughs> but I will say that I think, you know, you might want to interview my wife. That might be interesting. Um I think my wife might say that one of the reasons we have a happy marriage and and I'm I'm her third husband she's had two she's had two two previous husbands um I think one of the reasons we're having a happy marriage is because I know how to fight well
0: which means yeah.
1: which means fighting fair not being afraid not panicking not saying stupid stuff because I'm panicked, uh, not saying um, hurtful things because I'm hurt and angry. Um, and, and this is not something I got from the men's movement, but you know, one thing that I have found works for me and my relationships, and I've been doing it since before I met my wife, and we've only been married uh, seven years, going on eight. Um, I didn't get married till I was 60. Um, so what has helped me in my relationships when I'm in conflict with a woman is just to say, okay, I would like to have some ground rules. Um, number a, let's hold hands while we talk. Let's hold hands while we talk. And I have found, at least I think I have found it, maybe I'm just imagining it, but I, what it seems like it does to hold hands with the person you're having some friction with is it just sort of discharges the negative energy, sort of like a lightning rod. Hmm. And they can they can feel that, I, you know, I mean them no harm, I'm not trying to hurt them. You know, this is my hand here, just hold my hand. And then the second rule that I have found works is, look, one of us, and I'm not sure who it's going to be first, we can take turns, flip a coin, Whoever is talking gets to talk until they have said everything they want to say. The other person has to just listen. And the rule is that just listening does not mean they believe a single freaking syllable of what you're saying. So there's no need for you to interrupt and jump and jump in and cut the other person off and keep them from really saying what they want to say. No need for you to do that because they can say it. And it doesn't mean you agree with a word of it. Then when they're done, you got their full picture. If you want, you could respond or you can return with your whole picture. And that has worked really well for me. And I, and my wife and I, when we were new, we had a couple of those. We haven't had one in a long time. And I think, my wife really appreciates that, you know, I she can trust me. I'm, I'm fair. And when we have a disagreement, you know, it's easy for her to own her part of it. And it's easy for me to own my part of it because it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you got some stuff going on. So there you go.
0: In the men's movement, it seems like your focus has been on men's access to their kids after divorce. Um, what What are you seeing in terms of any movement in terms of shared joint and physical custody? Uh, and tell us about the the organizations that help men who are experiencing divorce.
1: Okay, well, um, it, it might seem that that's been one of my primary concerns and it has been somewhat of a concern for me i was a national i was the executive director of the uh, national congress <clears throat> excuse me the national congress for men and that was started as a generalist men's organization and that's one of the interesting things about fred and me he he sort of got mad at me when i was executive director <clears throat> and ncm was in the middle of sort of an identity crisis about whether it was a generalist organization or a fathers rights organization and most of the energy, most of the people participating in NCM were divorced fathers. So I remember <clears throat> getting some advice from excuse me, from, from Warren Farrell, who said an organization is going to be what it wants to be. And it looks like NCM wants to be a father's organization, so that's probably the way you want to go. That sort of hurt Fred's feelings because he was in on the, the uh, creation of NCM as a generalist organization. Anyhow... So yes, I, I am very concerned about father's issues, but to me fatherhood is the central issue for men, whether they're fathers or not very much like career opportunity is central for women, whether they want to be CEOs or not. It's just being recognized for having those skills, abilities, talents, and capabilities. You know, women can do math. They can make tough decisions. They, You know, all of those things that we doubted women could do as business people. Having those doubts be dispelled is good for women. It's good for women in a bazillion ways. Not least of which is it's good for them about what they believe about themselves. Fatherhood is central for men because... Father's issues are based around the negative stereotypes of men, that men are cold, unkind, uncaring, selfish, mean, impatient, you know, all of that stuff, which in some people's minds justifies treating fathers badly.
0: And I would add deviant. Parents. There's a suspicion of, of men yes. with little kids or some weird yes. sexual weirdness. Yes,
1: yes. And even, even school teachers face that, you know? You hear from male school teachers; some of them leave the profession of, of being an elementary school teacher because they're afraid of the suspicion and they don't want to be accused. So yes, there you go. Um, so fatherhood to me is the central issue for men, but the, the the larger issue wrapped around fatherhood is the that idea we talked about earlier about options for men to have full emotionally connected, expressive human lives. And, you know, if you got a kid, you know, what's more human than want to love your kid, be with your kid, help your kid, teach your kid, have the kid grow up happy and strong and loving. That's pretty nice. Um, so so that's, that's the sort of the caveat I want to give about my main interest being around fathers. It's it's around fathers, but it's way around fathers. It's a big circle around fathers and, and fathers' issues. So does that answer the question? I know I sort of got the, zeroed in on the, the question of whether fatherhood was my main interest.
0: The other part of the question was, are there advances yeah. in terms of state's yeah. presumption for joint custody? Yeah,
1: well, you know, The National Parents Organization, uh, which is all about shared parenting, um, does not think that we're doing so well on making shared parenting the norm. Um, And, you know, your listeners might want to take a look at, I think it's called It's the National Parents Organization is the name of the organization. I think their website is sharedparenting.org, sharedparenting.org. And they have a map showing uh, what each state gets on the shared parenting report card. And there aren't a lot of states. The only state they give an A to is Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, there, there was lots of resistance to shared parenting. Um we're now, talking I think about two...
0: after divorce, right?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Not the 50-50 parenting kind of thing that you're talking about where there's a one household and trying to be balanced in that household, but in shared parenting after divorce. Um, so um, there are two main constituencies that I see that are sort of standing in the way of shared parenting becoming more of the norm. One is divorce lawyers. <laughs> and and you know why, right? I mean, you can guess why.
0: They want money it's, from controversy.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. The more they can make divorce look like a kill or be killed enterprise, the more they can offer protection to their client, against these horrible people over here, who, by the way, did you know that I heard from your wife's lawyer that she's planning, you know, the more they can stir up paranoia and fear, they, they're a protection racket, right? I can protect you. I can keep you from being annihilated. You know, if the, if the norm was, look, You're both going to be parents. Neither of you is going to be annihilated. You got some details to work out, but it can be done. And it's done successfully every day. Well, then what do we need a lawyer for? Then it becomes a matter of mediation. And in two, three, four, five, six sessions, done. And then maybe you need some tune-up sessions in a couple of years. Great. Um, So divorce lawyers, I think. Uh, have been one of the main constituencies and and there was an effort oh a couple of years ago it's the most recent effort i can think about in one of the dakotas i'm not sure if it was north or south but one of the main actors in defeating the bill there was uh, the bar association who's the second constituency all right well before i mention the second constituency let me let me mention and and, and assure you that i recognize the existence of the the correlate of this constituency 50 years ago. 50 years ago, um, there were lots of men who had careers in the trades. Uh, And what made them men was that they were whatever, bricklayers, masons, plumbers. You know, my daddy taught me this. His daddy taught him this. And that's what, that's what we do. That's what makes me a man uh, outside of the trades. You know, just the idea of making money is what makes me a man. That's my identity as a man. So, you know, it's a pretty strong impulse to have a personal identity. And so 50, 60 years ago, when women came along and said, hey, uh, Mr. Plummer, uh, looks like you have pretty good business going there. And uh, it's a nice trade you've got. And uh, I see you've got a nice union helping you. And uh, did I hear that you don't let women into that union? Uh, we need to talk about that. Well, how did men respond? <laughs> we don't want no women in this union. This is This is for men. Right? All right. So, look, I get that. Today, we still have a lot of women who, whose primary identity is as mother. I'm the mother. I'm the mother. Yeah, he's the father, but I'm the mother. And to have some man <laughs> say that he can be just as good a parent as you can be, it's kind of like says who? No way. You know, there are a lot of women who sort of don't want to hear it, and they have trouble hearing it.
0: Is there an organization and that represents their these individual not, women? I
1: I I don't think there's an organization that is specifically and uh, openly organized around this. Point that I'm going to mention, but there are many, many little organizations, and there is, you know, what some of us call an industry around the idea of male violence against women. And the other constituency that often shows up in general assemblies, uh, state legislatures, when they're considering. Uh, a joint custody bill. One of the main constituencies, along with the lawyers, uh, is the domestic violence uh, advocacy crowd, who are also making a lot of money. Some of, some of those executive directors of those shelters, you know, pulling down 100k and more, 200k. Um, but money isn't their primary motivation, at least not for the for the the larger Movement of women who are uh, extremely concerned. I, I would say the facts do not comport with the level of concern. Um, who will tell state legislators, no, 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 can't have forced joint custody. That's what they'll call it, forced joint custody, because it endangers women and children.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's it. That's 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 what happens. Um, so I think that we need, you know, the great quote from Gloria Steinem. Uh, I think she said it in 1995 and she she, she's said it in an interview, um, with I, with feminist.com, um, a website. And then she also either said it or wrote it in Ms. Magazine. She said years ago, she said over the past I think she said 25 years. Over the past 25 years, uh, we as women have done a good job of convincing the world that women can do what men can do. Our challenge over the next 25 years is to, is to convince the world and ourselves, she said, parenthetically, to convince the world and ourselves that men can do what women can do. Hmm. And, then she, and then she added, and so far, I don't think we believe it ourselves. And it sort of makes sense because for a man to be able to accept that, yeah, a woman can pick up a monkey wrench and, you know, know how to to do what I have learned to do is, you know, an easier pill to swallow than for a woman to accept that a man can be as deeply loving, and nurturing, and angelic, and I mean, women, many women, believe they create, not just gestate, but create life, you know, like really mystically, like just some magical power that women have, when in fact, you know, what women do in gestation is a lot more It's a lot more mundane than that. And it's really the zygote. It's the union of the the sperm and the the egg that sort of creates the life and takes care of business, sends out its own placenta, finds a place to attach to 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 the uterus to draw sustenance. So, you know, for a woman to believe that her connection with life and the creation of life, and that's a pretty hard, that's a harder... Burden, a harder ask, I guess, would be the thing to say. It's a harder ask uh, to ask women to sort of share that. And so it's understandable why there's resistance, but we got to overcome it if we're going to really have fairness and equality between the sexes. Because if men don't have fairness and equality at home, women aren't going to have fairness and equality in the workplace. That's Because right. they're a there are lots of men out there who are working not because that's where they want to be, but because it's where they gotta be. And I remember as a little boy, right back along with that story of me um hearing um that I was really good with babies for a boy, I remember, it's just a sort of a recovered memory too, although I don't think I ever really forgot it. Um I remember thinking. I could not imagine anything sadder than to be a man who has to leave his home every day, his wife and kids, and go out all day and be away from them and then come home tired. Now, my father was an old-time family doctor, so I saw this Big time, big time. I mean, the hours that man put in were phenomenal. He was a family doctor, an old time family doctor, made house calls until he was way past his prime. And I guess when he came home and was tired and grumpy, I just thought, wow, I don't want that. I do not want that. And when he died, <laughs> we're at the funeral home and all of my brothers and sisters were you know, at the funeral home and patients came patient after patient after came after patient came to pay their respects to old Dr. Kammer and they would start telling stories about how warm and kind and caring and loving he was and my brothers and sisters are looking at each other and saying who are they talking about warm kind caring my father gave it the office, and when he came home, he didn't have anything left. He was basically a stranger in his own house, and I did not want that.
0: Got it. Did not want. How many siblings did you have? Six. So there are seven of you. Yeah. Wow. What was your birth order?
1: I'm number five. Wow. Uh, number, f- number four son, number five kid.
0: Wow. Um, in, in terms of other men's movements, in my video interview with Gordon Clay, he thought that recently, kind of a strong voice is the mythopoetic that evolved from Robert Bly's work with men. Um, what other organizations do you see are active doing the work besides the men's rights, fathers' rights groups?
1: Well. I have dabbled in every aspect of the men's movement I can touch. I wanted to know it all. I mean, when you're doing a radio show, you know, and you're looking for good guests, you know, you want to keep things interesting. Outline the different branches for us. Go ahead. Say say it again?
0: Outline the different branches for us of the men's movement, please.
1: um, I guess on on one extreme, you have the National Organization for Men Against Sexism, a very pro-feminist organization, NOMAS. Uh, On another extreme, you have, uh, I don't know what you would call them, the, they're sort of, I guess you'd call them the anti-feminists. You don't want to hear anything about it. Um, And, you know, they believe, I guess, you know, they can probably point to scripture that talks about, you know, how men are supposed to have dominion over women. I don't know. But, you know, those are pretty... Pretty big extremes. Do they have um, a group? I, I,
0: though, is there a men's? I, I,
1: if if they're, I, probably there's a four chan about them or you know a, a, a subreddit on Reddit. Yeah, you know, I mean they're definitely out there. Um, you know, th- th- there's there's also, well, so there's no and then there's the very pro feminist and very anti feminist. I guess I would. Point to us the two extremes, the mythopoetic guys. You um, know, I did that. I did, I did a, a sort of a cousin of of that, which was the New Warriors training weekend. It's it was beneficial. It was fun. It was interesting. At the New Warriors, the, the thing I have to give the New Warriors credit for is that years and years after my father died, they helped me have my first cry about his death. So they can be pretty powerful in a lot of ways. But to me, you know, to talk about making things better for men and to not talk about all of these cultural and societal and political ways in which things could be made better for men is really kind of, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of whipping out. Because you'll often hear these fellas who are all about doing the work and getting in touch with their feelings and really owning their stuff and you know, all of that stuff. And you say to them, well, you know, you really want to help men. That's what your organization is about, is helping men. How many men? Have you ever wondered what percentage, have you ever measured, looked into what percentage of the men who come to your meetings and at check-in they say they're feeling lousy and terrible and depressed. How many of them are saying that because they're divorced and are having problems seeing their kids? Oh, well, I'm Yeah, maybe we should look into that. And maybe if you find out that they can't see their kids, and that's one of the reasons for a lot of the problems you're seeing, you know, alcoholism, depression, suicide attempts, uh, not doing well at work, uh, no, no successful relationships. Maybe one way to help men with all of those problems is to, you know, get right to the core of the problem. What if... You know, a couple hundred of you guys went to take take California, Sacramento, for instance, and walked around the, the halls of the state legislature and say, "Hey, guys, speaking to the legislators, um, we know you don't hear this a lot, but uh, you really need to do something about joint custody and uh, a lot of problems." are caused by the fact that a lot of men are uh, bereft of their children. So we need to do something about that.
0: Got it. And I, have, I, I and, want to and, get to your books before oh, we okay. run out of time. Um, you, I have been
1: going on, haven't
0: I? Uh, it's wonderful. You've written Goodwill Towards Men, your first book, Women Talk Candidly About the Balance of Power Between the Sexes, and then the second book, If Men Have All the Power, How Come Women Make the Rules?, And third one for young men, Heroes of the Blue Sky Rebellion, how you and other young men can claim all the happiness in the world. I I know that you feel like there's been kind of a a lace curtain, I think you call it, in terms of getting the word out about your books. Explain what that is.
2: Well,
1: it's not just about my books. I mean, it's not that the lace curtain is only, you know, out to get me. Um, Nicholas Davidson wrote a, a really wonderful uh, examination of the difficulty that people of my ilk and people who are like four degrees removed from my ilk, basically anybody who disagrees with the feminist analysis of the world can have a real hard time in the publishing industry. So Goodwill Toward Men was the book that you helped me with. We had a great interview in Goodwill Toward Men, um, a book of interviews with 22 women, most of whom identified as feminist. Um, And we talked not just about the advantages that men have as men and the disadvantages women have as women, but the the, the converse or the obverse or the reverse of that. We talked about the advantages women have as women and the disadvantages men have as men. My editor, as we were wrapping up this book, sent me a note saying I'm getting incredibly excited about this book. And the next thing I know, he's fired. Now, I never got a straight story from him. Something about, oh, they realigned his portfolio or something. But he got fired right before the book was published. And uh, I have a long treatise of what the Lace Curtain did to goodwill toward men. Um, some of it, some of it was, uh, internal to the publishing house, St. Martin's Press. Some of it was just outside the publishing house, but still in publishing newspapers, for instance. Um, the publishing St. Martin's Press basically tanked the book. Uh, we had, a, we had great opportunities to sell the book. The manager of the Barnes and Noble college bookstore, flagship college bookstore at Trinity College in Hartf- Hartford, Connecticut, I think. He read the book and loved it. This is before publication. I guess we sent it to him or something, or maybe he was a, you know, second degree connection. He got the book and he loved it. Thought it was really balanced and really a wonderful book. And he was all excited about it. And he offered to me and we, I extended the offer to St. Martin's Press. He was going to let all of his bookstore manager colleagues throughout the whole Barnes & Noble network know about this book. And he even wrote a sample letter to them about the book. We offered this to St. Martin's Press to help sell the book. What do you think they did with it?
0: They said, yes, great, we want to sell books. We they were in the business to sell books.
1: They, they did nothing with it. They they completely ignored it.
0: Incredible.
1: So that's the lace curtain at work. Um, And I'm not the only one. So after that happened to goodwill toward men, (laughs) I was a little, shall we say, well, I was hurt, sad, depressed, frustrated. And since I'm a man, what did I identify as my feeling? anger. Although, you know, as for having been in the men's movement for quite a while, I knew that anger is often a secondary emotion. And I just, I knew what was going on. And I saw this huge, huge machine that just sort of squashed me. Um, So after a couple of years of feeling that way, I wrote a, a book called, If Men Have All the Power. How come women make the rules? Was wry, witty, pithy, acerbic. Um, And uh, um, I found an agent for it in New York. Her name was Nancy Love. I believe she's deceased now. Nancy Love. And, uh, you know, many agent said, now, you know, this isn't for us, but that's standard. I did find an agent who said, yeah, I'll take this book on. And I said to her, Nancy, what's your normal percentage? And she said, 15%, which is standard. I said, I want you to take 20. She said, why? I said, because I want, because this is going to be a hard book to sell. And I want you to have uh, extra motivation to sell it. And she said, oh, no, 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 I can sell this book. I said, I want you to take 20. So that's what we wrote into the contract she didn't sell the book she couldn't sell the book, and one of the rejection letters she sent me from Warner Books, the executive vice President of Warner Books, um, said in his book uh he wasn't particularly crazy about the one liner approach because it was brief and pithy, just sort of ding 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 ding. He said. He said, no, he said he said while there is a lot of truth at the heart of this book I didn't particularly like the one one-liner approach and uh I will let and the amount of ire or passion this book would stimulate among the in-house staff would be enormous I'll let one of my I think he said, male colleagues. I'll let one of my male colleagues be the one to be pummeled. So, you know, he sort of proved the point, the whole premise of the book. Here's the supposedly powerful male editor, the executive vice president of Warner Books, and who's making the rules? He's afraid of what the women are going to say. So, you know, we make a mistake when we look at the patriarchy and look at the top and we don't look at what's going on down, you know, supporting them, Um, you know, allowing them to be at the top. So that's uh, so, you know, good. If men have all the power, how can women make the rules has been my most popular book.
2: Um,
1: Sad to say, it's sad to say, because it's not nearly as good of a book as goodwill toward men. It's not nearly as healing of a book and uh, progressive uh, a book as Goodwill Toward Men, but it's my most popular book. And then the book uh, for boys is, you know, my foray into, you know, trying to talk to the, to the little boy that I was, you know, back in the day when I was seeing the stuff going on, I'm kind of like, what the heck's going on here? Um, and of course that sold virtually nothing because I, I didn't even bother finding an agent for that. I just published that one myself, so there are my books
0: what what 's the the main message uh, and what does the um, uh, heroes of the blue sky rebellion mean
1: well the main The main message of that is to trust your feelings and you 're going to feel a lot of insecurities as a, as a boy growing up you 're going to feel a lot of insecurities a lot of people are going to tell you you 're wrong. You're not a man. You're a whim. Just trust your feelings. Uh, remember that, uh, you know, that the game is not the years between 13 and 23. The game is the years between 23 and 93. Okay. So right now you're going through a tough time, but keep your act together. Maintain your integrity. Be who you are. And then, you know, when you, when you get into orbit, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have a happier life. Um, the the Blue Sky Rebellion was this uh, this little fable, a little, a little piece of fiction. I started off the the book with. It was a story about an island with two tribes on it, and basically the story was about the two tribes, one being pretty obviously representing girls and women, one pretty obviously representing boys and men, and the story was about girls being able. Initially, they kept to their sides of the island, but the the girls and women's tribe eventually demanded and got the right to come to the men's, men and boys side of the island. And so things became a little crowded for for the men and boys there. Uh, the fish that they, they were fisher people the the girls were, were, the girls and women were were agrarian. So when the boys would would take their fish, to the middle of the island, to the market, uh, they would find that whereas they used to be able to get five tomatoes for their for one fish, the, the women and girls were saying, we can get our own fish now. We'll, we'll give you two, maybe three if we like you. And so pressure started building on the boys. And some of them started actually saying, well, you know, why can't we go over to the to the other side of the island, where there's rain and, and and lushness, you know. Don't tell anybody, but I'd like to grow p- plants and flowers too. And they sort of whispered, "You do too. I do too." Mm-hmm. And they got together and they they went over the mountain range. And they went into the into the uh, the more lush uh, side of the island where the women and girls were. And uh, just as they were getting there, sort of staking their claim, the elders from the men's side of the island came rushing over the mountain pass and down the path and said, you boys get home right this minute. We didn't come over to this side of the island and look at us. We turned out just fine, you know. And the boys said, no, no. Mm -mm. It's Blue Sky Rebellion time, you know. You, you always told us, the boys had a, a, a tradition, the men and boys had a tradition of singing songs about the big blue sea and the big blue sky. And, you know, and the boys at, re- at rebellion times pointed to the east and they said, didn't you always tell us about the power of the, of the big blue sky? Well, look, there's big blue sky out there too. And look at the sunrise. And the pinkness of that sunrise added to the blue only makes it more beautiful. And we're not giving that up. So it's a new day. Cool. And that's that's what the Blue Sky Rebellion was about.
0: Wonderful. Um, Why do you think it is that around the world, except sub-Saharan Africa, more women are graduating from university, but more women at least express anxiety and depression? So women are getting ahead in education, but they're more anxious than boys at least say they are.
1: So, um, first of all, I didn't know you know, that f- fact about Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I do know when we talk about diagnoses of depression, we really got to be careful of our criteria. And there is pretty good indication, pretty good reason to believe that our diagnostic criteria for depression misses a lot of depression in boys. Because often male depression manifests in ways very different from the way female depression is manifested. Boys <clears throat> and men will often manifest their depression through acting out, Anger. not withdrawing, by being angry. Um, so uh, I, I would like to know, you know, what, what are the metrics used to uh, to come up with the idea that females in sub-Saharan Africa are more depressed and angry, no, 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 an- no. anxious than men? No,
0: no. What I said was that around the world, girls are more often graduate from university, except in Africa.
1: Oh, except in Africa.
0: Oh, okay. But around the world, Um, everywhere, more girls graduate from university, but also more girls are anxious and depressed.
1: Okay, so so around the world, not in sub-Saharan Africa, that idea that I expressed about the misdiagnoses might apply. But more generally... About education and about achievement in lots of ways. It's not just in education, and you know things that are clearly organizational and, and and measured in lots of ways that are more difficult to measure. Women are just thriving in ways that a lot in ways and in numbers that men and boys are not. Suicide statistics. Um, drug and alcohol addiction statistics. What do I think is fundamentally the issue there with boys not pursuing their educations as much as girls and women are? In in two words, a pep rally. 50, we've had a, we've had a constant 50 year pep rally for women and girls. You go, girl. You can do and be anything you want to do. Don't ever let anybody tell you you go, you go, girl. Girls rule. Girls are great. Sometimes you even see posters that say women are perfect. Um what do we hear from what do we hear about boys and men? You know, you go, girl. What do boys hear? Boy, don't go there. I don't go. I think that at a fundamental level that is not articulated, that they're afraid to articulate because they don't want to be criticized for being male chauvinist pigs. They don't want to be criticized for uh, some kind of microaggression. (laughs) I think boys at some very deep fundamental level just think, man, the future is female. I guess I'll play video games. I'll play video games, to hell with it. I, that's, that's what I think is the fundamental problem. And it's very sad. It's very sad.
0: Hmm. Um, so you you believe there really is female supremacy and toxic femininity and female shadow. What What, what does all that mean? You've mentioned those concepts.
1: Yeah, so um, feminism talks about strong cultural notions of male supremacy, you know the ways in which men were raised to believe they were superior to women. Uh, it was one of the first messages about, uh, from feminism. Uh, chauvinism, ways in which men were raised to believe they were superior. Um, as a counter-feminist, I say, yeah, we did that. Now, let's talk about the ways in which women believe they're superior. And there are many. Um, So I I don't think there's any question that female supremacy is a problem in some very important domains. Where those traits for which women are deemed superior and supreme are, are salient and important. Namely, parenting you know, for one. Um, So I don't think there's any doubt that there's such a thing as female supremacy at work. It's not total. It's not pervasive in every domain, but it certainly exists in some important ones. Um, The idea of shadow, there is definitely a female shadow. There's definitely a male shadow. There's definitely shadow. Shadow is a Jungian concept. The idea that people will displace and deny those aspects of themselves they don't want to acknowledge. And, you know, if you're raised to believe that as a girl or a woman, you your identity is and your wonderfulness is built around being kind and caring and loving and compassionate and empathic, <clears throat> and you get involved in a, a movement of women who are kind of like, we're going to go kick butt and take names, Um, and those people sort of, some of whom really get into a power trip about how strong their movement is and how much they can do and how much they can do to those men who used to make them feel bad. That's not the female brand. That's, you know, a different brand. And so rather than being able to internalize and incorporate uh, a nice amount of that good, you know, fighting spirit, they have a tremendous amount of that tr- fighting spirit that they deny and won't take any responsibility for. And so they sort of are able to, to justify sort of by denial, by projecting it or, or in some other way hiding it in the darkness of the shadow, uh, they sort of deny that they ever do anything wrong. And that if and we're not really doing anything unjust to men, uh, that's the shadow. When, you know, I think it's pretty clear that some women are doing some pretty mean things to men uh, and on an individual level, you know, falsely accusing them of child sexual abuse if they're in a divorce with the man, you know, so that they can get custody of the kids. That's pretty mean. That's pretty mean and that's very shadowy. So yeah, I think that there's definitely female shadow. There's also male shadow, but we've talked about the male shadow for a long, long time. We, it's hard to talk about the female shadow when the, when the brand image of, of females is angelic. You know, mother and you know, sweetness and light.
0: Well, there's also the bitch, the collie, the witch, the, so it's very dual this view of
1: women. Yes, it it is very dual. And if you talk, if you say the word bitch these days, you get slammed. Uh, Words like misogyny get very quickly applied to anybody who, you know, dares to bring up that other part of the duality. It's very deep in the culture, but it's not so strong right now, at least not expressed. And the fact that it's not expressed doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make men stop feeling it or suspecting it or thinking it, it just drives it underground. And what happens when it goes underground? It becomes shadowy, right?
0: Do you not... think Trump being the kind of the epitome of negative masculinity, negative male shadow, do you think that's healing in a way to bring it to the surface so it can be examined?
1: No, 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 no. I don't think he brought anything healthy to the surface. Um, No, he was, you know, it wasn't just women, (laughs) it wasn't just women who found him reprehensible. Um, So uh, I know and I understand that he really, 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 really motivated a lot of women to think if this joker, if this horrible person, if this horrible man can become president of the United States, wow we are really in a world of trouble and we better keep working at what we've been working on. However, a lot of women voted for him too. I mean, isn't it true that more white women voted for him than than, than Hillary? Yes. I think, I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, he, I do not see him as any kind of an expression of healthy masculinity, no. Oh,
0: no, but just the fact that he was so obviously misogynistic brings up the discussion and the awareness we don't want this.
1: Well, he's he, yes, he's very misogynistic. He's just misandrist all over the place. He doesn't like, anybody he, who gets in his way, he'll slam. I mean, what's one of the biggest put downs of a man in male culture? you're a loser. You're a loser. And that was quite a common epithet he would throw at people, particularly men. He's a loser. Yeah. He, he was just an ugly, he is, he is just an ugly, uh, ugly perversion of male, of traditional uh, male ideas of power.
0: Why do you think he got elected?
1: Because a lot of what men and a lot of what women, a lot of what people believe has been driven underground. I mean, look, you know, you can can have a lot of different views about how the immigration issue ought to be handled but to tell people who wish that there was a better immigration system in place that they're wrong and deplorable, deplorable, Um, and you should just be ashamed of yourself, Um, even though it affects you and your livelihood much more than it affects mine, uh, I'm still a good person better than you because you're worrying about your job and I'm not worrying about mine. So you're wrong and I'm right. And so shut up what, that, you know, the idea of political correctness, I think probably more than anything fed into uh, the appeal of Ronald Reagan. Of, uh, of, Donald Trump, he said, you you hear a lot in, in commentaries of why people voted for him. He said what people were thinking, but didn't dare say. So what's the cure for that? Let people say it, let them get it off their chests, have a discussion with them. Some of what they say might be helpful. And we don't do that. We have these polarized points of view. And so, you know, we have, the, we have the Democrats as the mommy party and the Republicans as the daddy party, and that's fine. But they ought to have a happy marriage where they hold hands when they argue. <laughs> and they say, OK, Senator, give your speech. Thank you for your speech, Senator. Now I'd like to give my speech and then let's get into the committees and work it out. We have a happy marriage. We have horribly dysfunctional marriages uh, in our our institutions because the the Republicans don't want to acknowledge the value and legitimacy of the liberal principle. The Democrats don't want to acknowledge and value the legitimacy of the conservative principle. And both principles have value and legitimacy and we just got to figure out how to optimize the combination
0: Hmm. Um, Last question is, I'm always interested in models, examples that we can duplicate. When you look around the world, are there any countries that are doing better than we are in terms of equality for men and women?
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, because I I can think of some countries that are really good at equality for women. My but the fact that I don't, but I don't see them as uh, examples of equality, generally, because I don't see them as working for equality for men. Well, it, for women, I don't know. It's, isn't uh, Sweden's, you know, often held as a paragon of of women's uh, advances?
0: Yeah, but yeah. they don't ever but, couch it in terms of women. They always couch it in terms of advantages for men and women. They're very okay, careful. All,
1: okay. Maybe, maybe, and maybe that's true. I don't study Sweden, but I can see very possibly how what is said is that, well, these advances for women are good for men, too. I, do they have a rebuttable presumption for joint custody law in Sweden? I don't know. I doubt it. But maybe they do, but I doubt it. That's the kind of thing that I would want to look for uh, before I would decide that a country was really egalitarian. Um, Can I think of a country that I think is really egalitarian for both men and women? Uh, Not really, but, you know, I do see some interesting things coming out of the Commonwealth of Great Britain. Um, uh, There are some people in Parliament who are saying some things that are really nice uh, about the need to pay attention to what's going on with men. I think they just uh, recently in in London came up with a, what is the equivalent of a joint special committee in Congress here to look at what's going on with men and boys. Uh, also, Australia has some really, written inter- too, but Australia has some really interesting and helpful uh, initiatives for m- helping men sort of talk about what's really going on in their lives. You know, the Mankind Project does that a little bit. Um, But to really talk about it, I think they have a a slogan. It's it's it's. I don't know what the slogan is, but it's a pretty strong campaign in Australia that seems to be interested and and to be addressing the problems that men and boys are facing much more than you see in the United States. so no, I don't really know of anybody who's really a paragon of equality.
0: What's the Mankind spaces. Project? Oh, the
1: Mankind Project is the New Warriors. Mm. Uh, it's it's a little bit mythopoetic. You know, at, at the weekends that they have, they'll do some, you know, some drumming and I think some storytelling. It's been years since I did it. Uh, some rituals, some Native American rituals. Um, uh, you know, it's nice, it's nice. It's You know, it's certainly not, you know, looking at spreadsheets all day. Um, So it's a bit mythopoetic, but I don't know that they consider themselves mythopoetic. They they call themselves the New Warriors Training Adventure, and I think the corporate entity that does it is the Mankind Project.
0: Got it. Uh, Anything else that you'd like people to think about in terms of how to give boys and men a fair shake in their lives?
1: Um, that's a good question. I think maybe at a, at a at ground level, you know, if if your podcast is heard by, you know, hundreds or thousands of, of uh, parents, mothers, as well as fathers, you know, and I'll say this actually that uh, some of the best advocates for boys issues are mobs, MOBs, mothers of boys. Um, Parents who think that maybe something they'd like to do something for boys, and maybe in particular their boys, they might take a look at the stats on the school that their boys go to, and you know, graduation rates, suspension rates, discipline rates. Uh, who's what percentage of boys and girls are, are taking AP courses? What percentage of boys and girls are going to colleges? Um, and if, finding, if you find a discrepancy, as I think they very likely will, go to the administration of the school and say, what are you doing about this? What can we do about this? How can I help? I think that, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road, or one of the places where the rubber meets the road. And that might be a good place to, you know, activate uh, some, uh, some energy.
0: Great, thank you.